You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. All right, we are in the midst of a series on church history this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 4. 1 Timothy chapter number 4. In this series on church history, we started at the beginning. We did not start in Acts chapter 2, but we started with Jesus Christ and his disciples. There where the Holy Spirit was first outpoured amidst his disciples, there where the church began because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the founder of the church. He is the one who began this new mystery that is the uh, New Testament gospel and the New Testament church, uh, that which was to make Israel jealous by a people that was not a people. And so uh, we started way back there with Jesus and his disciples. We looked at the disciples as they spread from Israel uh, out into Turkey and Asia Minor and Greece and even as far out as Britain. Uh, possibly there are traditions and stories that talk about even Peter making it out as far as Great Britain. Uh, and then the disciples traveled also west in the other direction, out into Syria and uh, Iraq, you know, modern-day Iraq and other areas out west as well. Most all, except for the Apostle John, were martyred, were killed, not because uh, they went to an island of headhunters who you know, ate their flesh or anything like that. Uh, they were killed solely for the reason that they were preachers of a gospel, preachers of a man who was widely unpopular, who culture did not accept, government did not accept, religion did not accept, to the extent that they were literally taking the lives of these preachers of the gospel. It would have been very tempting. It would be very tempting to just say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to lay off for a little while. It's costing people their lives. This is dangerous. Usually when we involve ourselves in dangerous things, we back off a little bit, right? Oh, I would never jump out of an airplane. That seems silly, you know, to jump out of a perfectly good airplane, right? Uh, because it's dangerous. Why risk my life in such a way just for a thrill, you know, some people might say. And we, we have a tendency to back away from things which might cost us our lives. Don't walk up to the edge of the cliff because all it takes is one little trip and irreversible damage. And you may never come back. But when it comes to the disciples, they didn't come up to that brink of the cliff and say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach in this crowded area and they may not like it and they've threatened to kill me. They've threatened to arrest me. They've threatened to have me executed. And that's not good for my health. So I'm going to back off a little bit. They didn't do that. They went ahead and did what they knew was right to do. Even though they knew they were doing nothing wrong and they faced the consequences for that. So we talked about the, uh, the apostles and the disciples as they spread. And then we looked at that 300 years of uh, Christian persecution on the church during those 10 uh, emperors of Rome, ending with Emperor Decius, who 
uh, was the worst of the persecutors of the church. But as soon as he was off the scene, we have a new emperor come onto the scene by the name of Constantine. Constantine, who saw this vision uh, and he saw that he was supposed to go in and conquer his enemies under the banner of the cross. And so he was supposed to fly a flag of the cross and march. And lo and behold, he goes in, he wins a great victory, and he takes that as a sign that he is to convert to Christianity and that he needs to, now that he's the emperor, convert the empire also to Christianity, which at first sounded wonderful, wonderful news to the church. Because finally, after 300 years of hiding and of being afraid, now we can come out into the open and not fear for our safety. But even beyond that, we can come out into the open and be popular. We can be celebrated and widely accepted and even elevated because we're Christians, because we're the church. At first, it sounded great. It sounded like a great reprieve, but powerful Worldly wise men are always going to do what they do. They're going to corrupt anything good if it is going to bring them some sort of profit. And Constantine himself was one of these that did that. We talked about reasons why uh, it does not seem that Constantine actually was a Christian. One of those was, remember, he waited to be baptized until just before his death because he had a lot of bad things he wanted to do in his life. And he knew, he, he thought that baptism was going to seal his redemption, uh, that it was part of his salvation. And so he wanted to wait until the very end so that he could kill off anybody who could, you know, any, kill off his own family members so that they could not take the throne away from him. And so Constantine was not, um, was not the savior that the church was hoping he was going to end up being. The church began to organize, churches began to organize under a hierarchy of priests and bishops and archbishops, ultimately the Pope on top, and he began to take position of Christ's place. In fact, he began to take that name as Vicar of Christ. Uh, the physical manifestation of Christ on this earth, the physical voice of Christ on this earth, and that he was above all other men most holy. But there is no man like that except for Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible tells us of no man that is to be like that. And so we begin to watch how Satan could not persecute the church out of existence, so he began to pervert the church out of existence. And we saw apostasy rise within the church, within the state church that became the um, Roman Catholic Church, uh, which we know today. Now, we haven't gotten very far into timeline. Uh, we have made it past 300. We uh, talked about three different groups uh, last week and the week before that. Uh, three different groups, the, the Monetists, the Donatists, and the third one, uh, Novationists. Um, we talked about those three different groups. One was in North Africa, one was in Rome itself, the other was, I believe, in Asia Minor, uh, who were rebelling, in a sense, against the state church. And it cost them. It cost them their churches, their properties. It cost many of them even their lives as they were hunted down by Emperor Constantine himself, hunted down one particular group and wanted them gone. But the whole reason I pointed those three groups out to us was to say that it's not like there was just one church, one movement, the state church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. 
it's not like there was just one. And then uh, hundreds of years down the road, there was a split off at the, at the Reformation, and now there's the Protestant you know, Reformation, and that the Independent Baptists, that we came out of the Protestant Reformation. No, there's not just one tree trunk. All along, since Jesus Christ, there were churches who chose to do what was right, who said what they're doing over there is an abomination. We can't agree with that. We're not, we're not a part of that. So all along, there were dissidents who would not go along with the majority opinion concerning church. And these three groups I mentioned were just some of those. And, and as I've mentioned before, and we'll mention again next week, um, we're not going to agree necessarily with everything that all of these groups would have held. However, it goes to show that there were churches who were out there trying to do what's right. Most of them went largely unknown, unwritten about. Now, we're in 1 Timothy chapter number 4 this morning, and I want to finish off this section talking about, um, let me get this turned on here, talking about some more major errors that were made there within the state church. Some major errors that were made uh, within the state church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to look at verse number 1. 1 Timothy 4, and we'll begin reading verse number 1. It says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Now he says after that that they are to uh, refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Now we look here <clears throat> at the warning that is given in 1 Timothy chapter number 4. And he's warning them to avoid the things which man is coming up with, man's favorite little pet doctrines, and to just simply stick to the scripture itself. This state church has done, I cannot get this thing to cooperate with me. Cooperate with me. Is anything happening up there? Doesn't look like it. Is that plugged in? I'm going to check and make sure the... Looks like it's plugged in. Should be working. Try it one more time. Anyways, that's where I want to be next. <laughs> now, you may not be able to read this, uh, but I just want you to pretend you can, anyways. These are a list of dogmas that were introduced um, introduced into Roman Catholicism and kind of a timeline of when they were introduced. We have uh, prayers for the dead, uh, the sign of the cross. I've talked about some of these already. Uh, the worship of Mary and the use of the title Mother of God, which is found nowhere in Scripture. 
Uh, that was 80, uh, 431, 8600. Latin was used exclusively in worship. The title Pope was used in 8610, kissing the Pope's feet in 8709. Uh, the temporal powers of the Pope in 8750. In other words, that the Pope uh, is superhuman in one sense, that uh, he has the power to do things that no other man can do. Um, <clears throat> they're given him uh, the job of Jesus Christ in many cases. There's adoration of the saints, and so you've, that, that term saint is, is terribly misused anymore. Uh, as if it's a, a specific person who did something great and then they got elevated to sainthood. Whereas the fact is, scripturally, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're a saint. Now, you don't always act like a saint, right, Fred? Now, we move on. <clears throat> Adoration of the cross, images, relics, and some churches, you know, have, this is a sliver of the cross, and they have it set up, or this is the uh, Shroud of Turin, you know, this is the napkin that was put over Jesus's face when he was buried in the tomb and you now they have it up there on display or any other number of weird things, relics that the church has gathered that people literally get down on their knees and pray to. Uh, fasting, Lent, Advent, uh, the, the, the fasting on Fridays, uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That was brought in in 8998. Fabrication of holy water, what makes holy water holy? I don't know either. Moving on, because <clears throat> it comes from the same tap as the sink. So uh, one time I played in the holy water at a Catholic church. I didn't realize it was a fountain there and I was just sticking my finger in it and playing in it. And the priest came out and hollered at me. I wonder if he had to drain it out and fill it up and re-bless it or something. I, I don't think he went through all of, of that. Uh, marriage of priests being forbidden in 81,000, rosary, sale of indulgences, we've talked about that before. Uh, the sacrifice of mass is officially recognized, and that's when they gather uh, routinely and continually sacrifice Jesus Christ. Uh, transubstantiation, confession there in that confessional booth to the priests, and so forth. Uh, and there's a, a list there of a variety of, of bad doctrine errors that come into the church and the timeline in which they do. My point is, when you remove Jesus Christ as head, and when you are run by men for their own profit, is it any wonder that doctrine is going to get so corrupt as it is? Here you see uh, what remains of a cathedral, which must have been very beautiful at one time, uh, over in Italy. And I want to talk here about, as it says, growing errors in the state church. One of the biggest, most important, and most egregious of these errors that grew was the idea of salvation by works. Now, what does that mean? Simply, it means that you have to do something to aid God in your salvation. You have to do something in addition to Jesus's shed blood on the cross to get you saved. I mean, this is good. It's a start, but now you've also got to do some things along the way as well, maybe to show your faith, but it's going to help to seal your salvation. Now, the <clears throat> sacraments, uh, which they eventually formed, you know, seven sacraments, these all had saving value, and these sacraments 
uh, were lar largely the priest's job uh, to perform. But we have to think, we have to remember this as we look throughout much of what the state church was developing. It was a system of works. And remember, they brought in pagan forms of worship. They brought in the pagan robes and the pagan censers and the pagan altars and the pagan everythings. And they brought those in and mixed them into the church worship. Why? Because it was appealing to everybody. Because it helped them bridge the gap between their worship of their false Roman gods or false Greek gods uh, into the worship of Jesus Christ. It's not so different now for me to go and enter into the cathedral because it's a whole lot similar to how I was worshiping my false gods before. And the Roman Catholics have done that same thing in many areas. They will go into Haiti and they end up mixing their Christianity with uh, the Haitian voodoo. And you get this weird mixture of Christianity and voodoo. There is, in some places, in some Muslim cultures, the Christians have gone in and have um, basically started what's called Chrislam, where they mix Islam and Christianity, and they have tried to marry the two together. Why? Well, to make Christianity more appealing to the people that they were trying to reach. And the same thing has happened in, in a variety of other places in South America. Uh, you see uh, the Festival of the Dead uh, down in, I think it's Brazil. Uh, why is it that Christians celebrate this Festival of the Dead? Uh, it is a pagan festival, but what do they do? Uh, Christianity went in there, and, and when I say that, I mean Roman Catholicism went in there. And to make their message more palatable to the people who are worshiping um, <clears throat> idols and, and demons, uh, they mix the two together, and so now they've included this Day of the Dead into uh, the way they worship. And they've tried to mix, they've done this all along. Why? Because it's more profitable to them. It gets more people into their uh, cathedrals and helps them to build even more and bigger and nicer cathedrals. It helps uh, the archbishops uh, to have more and more money in their coffers. You have to watch out for any kind of system of works. That is what separates biblical Christianity from literally every other religion in the world, every other uh, Christian cult in the world. The idea that separates it is this. Jesus paid it all. Versus the prophet did something good or a God did something good. And in addition to that, I need to add something to it or it all rests upon my shoulders. My eternity rests upon my shoulders. What a weight to carry. As Christians, we don't have to carry any of the weight. In fact, we're told to throw the weight onto him, to take our burdens to the cross and leave it there. That's what we're commanded to do. But then we get lazy and that's one of the faults of Christianity. Because we don't have to do any good works to earn our salvation, because we can take our burdens to the Lord and leave it there, we feel like we can just go ahead and live a life of ease. I talked about the sacraments. Let's look at what the seven sacraments are here. <clears throat> According to um, church teaching, a sacrament in the hands of a properly ordained priest um, became the infallible conveyor of grace. Now, what they're saying is, grace doesn't come directly from God through Jesus Christ. It comes through a priest who has been ordained and trained in some church somewhere and now wears a collar. Uh, that The grace now must come through him. By the 12th century, 
the church had chosen to recognize these seven sacraments. One was baptism. Now, you say, we, we recognize baptism. Oh, yeah, yeah, we baptize believers. Uh, if thou believest, thou may be baptized. Uh, we baptize those who have been saved. Baptism has no part whatsoever in your salvation. It's merely an outward recognition of what has already happened on the inside. It is a picture. It is a it is symbolism, much like, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper. And I won't rehash that point because we've already talked about these things. But uh, when they when they refer to baptism, they're mostly referring to infant baptism. When you bring your baby to church to be confirmed, uh, to be baptized, they believe, remember, that it washed away the original sin, the sin that they were born with, their sin nature. So they sprinkle the baby with water because you don't want to dunk babies under the water. Uh, that's not a good look. So we just sprinkle them because that's uh, uh, easier to do and the baby's not going to cry so much. Uh, and that's going to remove, wash away uh, their original sin that they were born with. And now they're perfect little angels until they begin to sin again. Of course, that is how purgatory came to be uh, because, well, how, do, how then do we pay for all the sins that we committed during our lifetime? If we got rid of the original sin already, what about this sin? Well, that's where you go to purgatory to pay your, for those sins. And we'll talk about that again later. The next was Holy Eucharist. Uh, this is the sacrifice at Mass. Um, this substitutes continual offerings for Christ's once-for-all cross or once-for-all uh, sacrifice. You know, when when... when you see a cross, typically there's nobody on it. Typically it's an empty cross, and that's the symbol. It's a, it's a good symbol because there's nothing on it. It's an empty cross, just like it's an empty tomb. I remember it wasn't too many weeks ago we talked about the cross and how odd it might have been in that day and age to have seen people walking around with a, you know, a jewelry with a cross on it or clothing with a cross on it. It would be just as weird if, if I were to walk around with jewelry of an electric chair or jewelry of, uh, you know, the, uh, a firing squad or, you know, some other means of execution, a hang, hangman's gallows, you know. Uh, that would be kind of morbid for me to wear that as jewelry but because the cross was a means of execution. But for us, it is a means of salvation because he shed his blood on the cross and it was that tomb being empty that was the conclusion of our salvation because he, of his own volition, rose again. Now, the Holy Eucharist, every time they meet for Mass, they are sacrificing Jesus Christ. If you notice, their crosses still have somebody hanging on them. And Jesus never makes it off that cross. They sacrifice his blood every single mass. And it is the Holy Eucharist that has done this. Confirmation. This strengthens the spiritual life of the recipient who gets confirmation and prepares him for spiritual maturity by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is done to a young person when they are coming of age, so to speak. They get confirmed uh, by the priest. Penance uh, removes sins by confession of them to a priest and by making the required satisfaction. Penance has changed forms over the centuries. Today, if you were to go into a booth, a confession booth, and were to confess your sin, the priest is going to say, uh, well, I don't know 100% exactly what he's going to say, uh, but he will, you know, uh, you're forgiven of your sins. You need to say, you know, 25 Hail Marys 
and pray your rosaries three times uh, in penance for your sins. And he'll adjust the amount of Hail Marys you have to say or prayers you have to pray or candles you have, votive candles you have to light. He'll adjust the amount based upon the, what he believes the severity of your sin is. In the times past, it was way worse than that. Uh, they would flog themselves literally across their back uh, because oh, they, they, they went out and committed adultery. And uh, they, they put themselves in such terrible positions. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit too. Um, but they went out and committed fornication or committed adultery and they felt horrible about it. And so for days they would flog themselves, they would beat themselves, they would starve themselves in penance to God. Like this is how sorry I am and that if I do these things, then it's going to justify me in your sight. Because Jesus' blood wasn't enough to justify them in, in, in his sight according to them. They also had to add to that by hurting themselves. Now, hey, fasting is not a bad thing. Denying ourselves is not a bad thing, but it's not going to accomplish any kind of saving value and it's not going to bring forgiveness. The only thing that brings forgiveness is confession and confession to the one and only mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ. There is no man, you, you can, can come and confess your sin to me and it might be juicy, you know, whatever it is, but I can't do anything about it except for go, whoa. You know, I can, I can pray with you, I can pray for you, but I can't forgive you for sins that you've committed against God or maybe somebody else. Penance was one of those that, had, uh, that, that was worthy of saving value. Matrimony. Uh, uniting a couple in marriage, holy orders, these ordained certain men into the priesthood, uh, and then extreme unction. This was administered when uh, death seems imminent uh, to grant forgiveness for whatever sins remained and then to offer them some spiritual comfort. It is mostly just a temporary, unfortunate giving of comfort. And unfortunate is not the right word to use there deceptive giving of comfort. Here this person's lying on their deathbed and they still feel like something is missing in their life. They still have this weight of sin upon them. And if I lay on my deathbed and I still, have, I still know that I've lied or I still know that I've done some wrong things, I know that that's not going to keep me from getting to heaven. I know that that hurts my relationship with God, but no man can absolve that. Only God himself, and I need to go and seek forgiveness and confession to God, not anybody else. But this extreme unction that the priest gives here on the deathbed basically gives him the, the right, the power, to forgive them of all their sins so that they can go and enter into eternity sinless. Those are the seven sacraments. Let's talk here um, about the Mass. Um, so, growing errors, salvation by works. Under that, we talked about the sacraments. Now, I want to talk about the Mass itself. During the Dark Ages, the Roman Church changed the memorial of the Lord's Supper into the Mass. Now, we, we observe the Lord's Table. We do it every three months, basically, every fifth Sunday. Um, you know, the Bible does not give us any indication as to how often it should, we should do that. It was not... Uh, you know, we weren't given instructions into that aspect other than just as oft as you do this. Um, seems like in New Testament church, they were doing it fairly often, but they weren't doing it in the right way or for the right reasons. 
And remember, the Lord's table is not meant to fill our bellies. It is not meant to be a time of, of lust for food, of gluttony. It's not meant to be those things. It is simply meant to be a remembrance, a symbol, a picture in our mind so that we take that short little piece of time and think about what Christ did and think about how it has affected us. So we drink that grape juice and we take that bread in remembrance of him and nothing more. But to the Roman Catholic Church, they do this every single mass, but they, what they are literally doing is taking the body of Christ, they believe, through transubstantiation. This is that the substances themselves change form. That the wine, they use alcoholic wine, that the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ in your body and that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. This idea of transubstantiation, it was a miracle causing the bread and the wine to turn into uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, Calvary was once finished. It was the perfect, perfected sacrifice for sins. It only happened once. And so you're not going to see Jesus hanging on a cross here unless I'm, I'm preaching maybe about uh, the crucifixion because he's no longer there. Most most of the Christian worshipers of the time would have participated in this unscriptural mass, but there were those who withstood it. Brother Lawrence was one of those. He wrote a classic devotional called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he withstood that. He wanted nothing to do with this mass. And so we have mass and transubstantiation. Next, I'm going to look at doctrines of men. Now, we're not going to get to it today, uh, but doctrines of men. We'll see celibacy, vows of, po of uh, poverty, purgatory, and prayers for the dead, confession and fasting. And we'll uh, look at some of these very serious doctrinal errors that occurred back here in the early stages of the church, um, back when Satan perverted it by making it popular. So some things that we have to watch out for, and I didn't get all the way through this. I intended to get all the way through this today, and I did not. So we'll just finish it next week before we get into the next section. The section after we get through this uh, is a section of division again. Um, as these great errors in doctrine happen within the church, how do those who are trying to operate biblically respond? Well, there's necessarily going to be reactions to it and divisions to it. And so we'll look at different groups and how they reacted to the apostasy of the church during that time. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.